Good morning. I am Kylie's significant other, uh, Oliver's dad, otherwise known as Ryan, and it's good to be here with you all this morning. This morning, we start in the year 586 BCE. In this year, Jerusalem had fallen to the Babylonian Empire. Most of the nation had been deported from their homeland and made to settle in a strange land. The prophets exhorted the people of Israel to persevere in their exile, to continue to live good Jewish lives, and not only to tolerate their enemies, but to pray for the success of those who had defeated them. In the year 539 BCE, 47 years later, the Persian king Cyrus conquered the Babylonians, and the Persian Empire gained control of all the spoils of war that the Babylonians had won. This included the Jewish people and the Jewish lands. Cyrus, this Persian king, became a very important but also very strange character within the Bible and within the history and memory of the Jewish people. Cyrus was a pagan king of an enormous empire. And in the Bible, kings are usually not 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 regarded... Pagans are usually not regarded very well. An empire particularly is not regarded well. The entire Bible is written from the point of the view of a people that we would call faithful in the one true God, but these people are also, in almost the entirety of their existence, a suppressed minority. They've been under the thumb of the global military superpowers of their days for the vast majority of their time. The Jewish people did gain power and influence in the world just once under the good and wise King Solomon, but it was lost almost immediately. And the commentary in the Bible highly links that loss to the empire-building actions of that same good and wise King Solomon. Solomon ended up looking more like a pagan king of empire than a Jewish king with the Jewish mission. So back to Cyrus. Cyrus was this pagan king of an enormous empire, and when one sees his name in the Bible, you might think that this is going to be a man that continues the oppression of the Jewish people, or even someone that will suffer the wrath of God. However, in an interesting twist, Cyrus becomes known as a Messiah figure for the Jewish people. In Isaiah 45, we read, This is what the Lord says to Cyrus, to his anointed. This word anointed is Meshiach, or Messiah. This is what the Lord says to Cyrus, to his Messiah. Cyrus, this pagan king of an enormous empire, is named as the Lord's Messiah. This has to raise a few eyebrows and questions. In the beginning of the book of Ezra, we read that Cyrus has been told by the God of Israel that his people must be allowed to return home, and even more, to rebuild their temple. And so Cyrus, after hearing this, begins to let the people of Israel go. Cyrus is a man described in the Bible as one who hears the voice of the Lord and responds to it without hesitation and without misgiving. Cyrus hears that the Jewish people should be allowed to return to Jerusalem and build a temple to God, and so he lets them go. 
and even helps in resourcing them for the rebuilding of the temple. He goes and he finds the temple ornaments that the Babylonians had looted from the temple and he returns those to the Jewish people even. Cyrus did not give up the worship of his pagan gods. He did not begin to follow the different commands of Torah and yet he's still called Messiah. He simply heard and responded. And so in the year 538, the first wave of Hebrews sets out to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. These people are returning home after years and years of exile. They have purpose, and they've been resourced to fulfill that purpose. They quickly begin their work. In 537, they completed the new altar for the temple. In the year 536, they began to work on the temple itself. However, they quickly faced opposition. The people around Jerusalem first came to the Jews and asked them if they could help them in building the temple. But when the Jews rejected them, they began to work against the building project. And by the year 530, the work on the temple had ceased. The temple was to the Jewish people the very place where God dwelled with them. And you can imagine that rebuilding this temple should be priority number one. But the Jews instead became concerned with rebuilding their city, their economy, their government, and the temple project was all but forgotten. It's in this setting that we find ourselves, I find ourselves at the end of this sermon series. We've traveled through a number of weeks of wonder where we heard about the birth of the great city and how God had protected it. We've also wandered through times of grief. Temples fall and battles are lost. And we must learn how to live without the things that we had to leave behind. And Daryl began our journey of hope last Sunday where we learned that hope is an investment in the future, even in the face of adversity. One of the big ideas behind this whole sermon series was to use the history of Jerusalem as a metaphor for what we're experiencing as a church, in this very church. Three weeks ago on a Sunday evening, we gathered together and the pastors led us through a discussion of, what, of wonder, grief, and hope within our own church. We talked about the things that we wanted to remember, the things that we wanted to celebrate, We also talked about the things that we grieved that we knew we might have to let go of. And we talked about the hope that we have for this church in the future. Donna Streed took all of the teacher's notes, the pastor's notes from that, and then she even took the responses that those of us that attended uh, submitted, and she put them all in a book, Jerusalem as a Metaphor for Our Church, Conversation Around Wonder, Grief, and Hope. And this book is back on that back table if you're interested in hearing what our pastors had to say and what our members had to say about this stuff. And I've been reading through it this morning, and it's really, really quite good. And so we reach today's scripture. The prophet Zechariah writes to beseech the people to recommit to the building of the temple. He sees the presence of God as instrumental in the rebuilding of the Jewish culture. Please stand as I read to you today from the 14th chapter of the book of Zechariah. This shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall rot while they're still on their feet. 
Their eyes shall rot in their sockets and their tongues shall rot in their mouths. On that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of a neighbor and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, whatever animals may be in those camps. Then all who survive of the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the festival of booths. If any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain upon them. And if the family of Egypt do not go up and present themselves, then on them shall come the plague that the Lord inflicts on the nations that do not go up to keep the festival of booths. Such shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to keep the festival. On that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the house of the Lord shall be as holy as the bowls in front of the altar. And every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be sacred to the Lord of hosts. So that all who sacrifice may come and use them to boil the flesh of the sacrifice. There shall no longer be traitors in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. This is a portion of the story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So these verses just leave us all feeling warm and fuzzy, don't they? (laughs) Zechariah has quite the imagination. He starts out here with a horrific description of a plague, followed by quite a war, followed by a party, followed by something about kitchen utensils. It's a bit of a unique passage, but I think we can try to make some sense of it. When we're studying a book of the Bible, it is very helpful to identify what kind of genre of writing we're reading. The Bible is full of a lot of different types of genres. There's poetry and genealogy and historical accounts and narrative and propaganda and songs and proverbs, letters to friends, and knowing what it is that we're reading is really, really helpful. We wouldn't approach a poem seeking a scientific description of the universe And we wouldn't sing a genealogy to describe the rapturous experience of an encounter with God. Zechariah is a certain type of prophetic writing that we call apocalyptic literature. Now this word apocalypse is quite a bit loaded. In our 21st century Western culture, when we read or hear this word apocalypse, we bring to mind things like earthquakes and wars and tsunamis and plagues and fire and flood and locusts and helicopter gunships. The end of the world as we know it. And in religious narratives of this apocalypse, usually the good guys end up going into one place full of pleasure, and the bad guys go to another place full of torment. And this is a story that's been told in thousands of different ways by thousands of different people for thousands of years, and it frankly does not sound like good news. But I'm convinced that we can find good news in apocalyptic writings. Examples of apocalyptic literature in the Bible include portions of the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, the entireties of the books of Ezekiel and Revelation, and of course, our author today, 
Zechariah. With so much apocalypse in the Bible, it's worth a little bit of time to try to understand what exactly it is. So first, let's talk about the word apocalypse itself. The word apocalypse comes from the Greek language. It's made up of two Greek words. The first is apo, which is a simple negation. It's like saying un in undone or unravel. The second word is kaleptine. Kaleptine means to cover or to hide something. And so together, apokaleptine means to uncover, to unhide, to reveal. So apocalyptic literature is written to reveal something. But what does it reveal? Each instance of apocalyptic literature in the Bible has something in common. Apocalyptic literature is written by people who are actively being oppressed. Ezekiel, Zechariah, the portions of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel were all written while the people were in exile. The book of Revelation was written at a time when Christians were being hunted down and killed in horrific horrific ways daily by the Roman Empire. And this had been going on for decades. Imagine that you are a prophet of a people that are being oppressed. You know the goodness of God and you have a vision of hope for freedom from the hands of the oppressive empire and you know that someday their reign will come to an end. The empire will fall and you and your people will be set free. These are not things that you can simply put in a letter and send it on to the next village. If you write out that the empire is going to fall, you will be arrested. When the Babylonians, the Persians, or the Roman army finds your letter, they'll arrest you and kill you for sedition. And so these prophets had to begin finding ways to communicate with each other this hope of freedom, this restoration, in a way that their oppressors could not understand it. Hence, apocalyptic writing is full of intense imagery, symbols, allegory, and as such can be a little difficult to understand. Here's an example. In the ancient world, especially in Hebrew, each letter had a numerical value. And so if we're doing it in English, A equals 1 and B equals 2 and C equals 3, the word cab, C-A-B, would have a value of 6 because you'd add together the 3, the 1, and the 2. That it makes sense. It's pretty easy. And so in the seventh, seventh decade, Caesar Nero needed a scapegoat after a giant fire in Rome. The Christians became the perfect candidates for his scapegoat. The Romans began to gather up Christians everywhere that they found them and either burn them alive or send them into arenas to fight wild animals for entertainment. Now I want to send you guys a letter that says Nero sucks. This won't last. But I can't just write Nero sucks. I'll get arrested if I do. So instead I take Nero's name and add up the numbers and say something about that. In Revelation 13, we read, Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. That number is 666. And Caesar Nero's name adds up to 666. We've made that number so much bigger than it really is. We talk about Satan and these demonic forces, but it's really just Nero. 
What's more, every number had a deeper meaning for the Hebrew people. And the number six means exactly what it says in this verse. It's the number of man. The number six means mundane, earthly, normal, mortal. This verse in the Bible is simply saying that Nero is just a man. He's not a son of a God, as he claims. He's just like you and me, and you and I are mortal. Nero's time is finite. It will come to an end. Apocalyptic literature has a lot of stuff like this going on. So let's go back to Zechariah. Each of the people that had conquered the Hebrew people had perfected the art of torture. The Syrians and the Babylonians were famous for skinning people alive and performing all kinds of other horrible things. So Zechariah begins the verses that we read today with a plague against those who gather arms against Jerusalem. This plague calls to mind the tortures that have fallen on the Jewish people by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Zechariah is saying, what they have done to you has not gone unnoticed. The Lord has seen, and those that treated you as less than human will not go on without consequence. Zechariah continues in our verses with a great war. They'll seize each other by the hand and attack one another. In fact, by the time that Zechariah is writing, the Assyrian Empire that had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel had already fallen to the Babylonians. And the Babylonians who had attacked the southern kingdom of Israel had already fallen to the Persians. And Zechariah adds here, Judah too will fight at Jerusalem. The Hebrew here is quite clear, even if it doesn't translate well for us. But what the phrase means is that even Judah will attack Jerusalem. Zechariah, to this point, has dealt merely with the external enemies to the people of God. But here, he makes sure that they know that there's an internal enemy as well. That this isn't just about us versus them, but this is also us versus us. We're not innocent in this mess. We've contributed to the violence. We've done harm to the world around us, and we've done harm to our own people. So Zechariah has reminded the people of their long history of suffering. They've been conquered, defeated, and deported. They've had much to cry out to God and despair about. But in Zechariah, there's also a turn. And it's in this turn that we find the hope and the good news of apocalyptic literature. The plague will not last. The war will come to an end. There will come a time that the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles. Everyone from all the nations, will come and worship the king. This means that the Assyrians will be there. The Babylonians will be there. The Persians will be there. Zechariah even says that the Egyptians, that most ancient of enemies, will sit at that feast year by year, sitting next to them. And to further make his point, Zechariah tells us that every pot and bowl in Jerusalem will be holy to the Lord. 
If you've ever paid attention to the kosher rules and how to eat kosher, you know that you have to have different pots for different types of food. You can only use these kind of pots for dairy, and you can only use these kind of pots for meat. And if you get the two mixed up, it is a bad deal. You have to buy new pots. You have to clean your whole kitchen. And it literally takes a week to get your stuff clean again. This is kind of like that, but this is even bigger. Only the highest and most sacred bowls made and consecrated by the temple priesthood can actually be called holy to the Lord and used in the temple sacrifices. But here, Zechariah says that everything is holy. The bowls that are used to feed the animals are clean enough for the service of God. Zechariah is saying here that there is no more line drawn between the clean and the unclean, the holy and the unholy, the sacred and the profane. These boundaries are no longer valid according to Zechariah. Most of all, Zechariah is saying this isn't about us versus them. The enemy is not going somewhere else. All of us together, friend and foe, Jew and Gentile, everyone sitting together at this table. We've gotten really confused about what apocalypse is. Apocalypse is not the death and destruction and the separation of the good and the bad and the end of the world. Rather, apocalypse is an unveiling of the nature and the goodness of God and the hope that we have in that goodness. Apocalypse in the Bible reveals a new beginning, a beginning that shows the entirety of creation to be connected, united, and free, gathering together, gathering together at a table in communion with God himself. Zechariah says that all will gather together year after year to celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles. And of course, at this church, we call the Festival of Tabernacles by its Hebrew name, Sukkot. As Dinah mentioned, we've been celebrating Sukkot since Wednesday evening and we'll continue celebrating until this coming Wednesday. Today, we do have food trucks outside. We will gather together. We'll share a table with those of us, with those around us, and we'll hope that this festival would bring us closer together. We'll hope that maybe next year at that table we'll have some new friends that we might not have expected. Sukkot is a time that we praise God for what he's provided in the past year and to pray that that provision continues. During Sukkot, we remember that we ourselves were once strangers in a strange land, but then we were set free. We traveled in the wilderness and in the desert for years and years, and we suffered much. But the desert came to an end. We found promise. And we hope that that promise finds its way into the lives of all that we encounter. All are welcome here. Everyone has a place at this table. Please pray with me. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commandments and commands us to celebrate the festival of ingathering. We thank you, Father, that in this festival... We remember the things that you have gone before us and done for us. We remember with wonder our own birth 
our own stories of growing up, our own stories of this church. We Father, Father, we do also remember that there are things to grieve. We've lost friends and we've lost things that we found comfort in. We ask you to help us to learn to live without them. We also thank you, Father, that at the end of this, there's always hope. That there's something to look forward to. And that often that thing to look forward to is found in the faces of our neighbors. We thank you, Father, for who you are and who you've made us to be. In your name we pray. Amen.